Welcome back. So after discussing the potential of peer-to-peer -peer approaches, we'll switch gears a little and we'll start discussing on the potential of place-based approaches. So our second panel for today is titled Place-Based Approaches, Localities for Local Action. This panel will be moderated by Associate Professor Chong Keng Hua, who is the Collaboration and Social Program Coordinator in the Architectural and Sustainable Design Pillar at SUTD. Kinghua, over to you. Hello, is it on? Oh, all right. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks, Samuel. Uh, very nice to be here. Um, well, without further ado, maybe we'll start with the sharing first. Then uh, we will go through the conversation. Uh, we have. Then we have. Maybe more time for a bit of cell and all that. Later. Yeah, so we were very well briefed about this. I'm supposed to spend the first 12 minutes just speaking first, then pass around, and then we will get to the question. So I'm Sweet Fun, I'm from Mission Health, and uh, I was asked to share about how um, community can lead um, health um, in the wellness kampong, which is a um, uh, we have three wellness kampong in um, Yishun. So let me just um, go quickly. Who is Yishun Health first? Uh, we are the um, zone, we are, the, we are part of NHG. Okay, NHG has got uh, three um, um, working units and we are the Yishun Health working unit, right? We serve a population of 330,000. Um, our brick and mortar um, facilities are really a hospital a community hospital, a medical centre. And what is different is that we do have uh, currently 24 community nodes. These can be actually actual spaces or they can be what we call pop-up spaces. Uh, we basically just go and occupy a space and open up tables and chairs and start work there on a regular basis. That means on a weekly basis minimally. Yeah? There are 24 of those uh, in Yishun Health. Um, today, I'm just going to share on one of them called Wellness Kampong. So, um, what exactly are we doing? What is this thing called Wellness Kampong? And I think uh, Dr. John Louis um, Lambore, he articulated this very beautifully and generously when he came to uh, the Wellness Kampong and he uh, experienced it himself. And he said, what a remarkable place. In my career as a public health physician since 1973, this was my second visit to a place where a hospital offers an infrastructure and tells clients or beneficiaries, this is your centre. You decide how to use it to live a happy, healthy life. We'll just be present if you need us. And that's just exactly what we uh, wanted to do. Yeah? Um, and really, what does a space offer to residents? It is a bumping space. It is a space where people come, they bump into each other, and magic happens. Um, but the magic is not the kind of, you know, big ab abracadabra type of stuff, right? It's just very localised, very ordinary, daily engagement, but it yields on the long-term extraordinary impact. Um, and how did we start this, right? Um, it really started with um, asking for a space from HDB, uh, a very small space, about 150 to 180 square metres. Uh, anything bigger will be beyond the manageability of one centre manager. And that is all the staff we have. Uh, somebody who has retired and would like to be a manager of a space. So we have three of that in Yishun. And it's just a space in the void that of our HDP, right? Um, small, it's very localised, it is at a very relatable level, right, of an individual or a small group. So most people who come to the Wellness Kampong, which you will see the three dots there and the red patches around it, they come from within a radius of 500 metres. Okay, so they really serve the neighbourhood. Um, and it is about being there every day, yeah, 
so being open reliably every day and being open to everyone in that community. That means to say, while we did have a, a couple come and ask us, can we have our wedding celebration here? Uh, it was a nice thought. We were, we thought, oh, okay, we make it uh, to be in that league uh, of a hotel or wedding photography site. But we said no, because they were getting married on Tuesday, and to give them the space means we disallow the rest of community to come, and then it becomes a space for private engagement, which was not the basis for this. But this didn't deter the young couple. They got married and then they had their first child. And when they wanted to celebrate their one-month celebration of the baby, they came again. Can we celebrate our one-month celebration of our child? And it's a Saturday. They understood the constraints under which we uh, operated. And we gave them the space. And they had a wonderful, small, intimate gathering of the family. And they put in an ang pao into the, the communal fund, which the Wellness Kampong um, could then use. So it became a space for people. So Justin, celebrating birthdays. Yeah, we, we can do it. Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's that consistency of that everyday hello. Not the one time in three years I go to a, a Marina Barrage on a field trip with you and then I don't see you again, but it's every day I see you. Um, I eat with you, I cook, I, I do other things, yeah? And that familiarity, just the, the, the things that we do is really very ordinary. Um, community gardening, um, cooking, the things that every day we would do, okay? Um, yeah, just a quick video to show you what we do. Yanfitsu Ketan is a retired farmer. He joined our Kampong Wellness a few months ago. He's very experienced in gardening. After time for harvest, he will tell me it's time to harvest the vegetable, then ask me to cook for the resident. I feel that Uncle Tan is very helpful. He knows uh, uh, what the restaurant like, healthy food. Uh, so he plant the vegetable without uh, adding any uh, insecticide. Uh. They enjoy very much what uh, Uncle Tan plant. Uh. They enjoy. Angeline and I started Tri-Generational Home Care, or Trigen for short, in 2014. But what we noticed as medical students, while rotating through the hospitals, we noticed that patients with tightly knit family tend to do better. We always wondered why. And finally, it dawned on us that perhaps they did better because their family members will advocate and care for them throughout the journey. Trigen was started with the hope of bringing together the elderly, the young adults as well as the students together as one family to promote intergenerational learning and care and as well as together they can care for those who are vulnerable within our society. I heard that 不过这一张是往生背往生背就是说以后我们最后一天走的时候
留下来给你的家属，看你要送给谁了。还有这个图呢，是老师带我们去，就是这边附近的庙拍的。我们坐在这里拍，代表以后我们要走的那一天哈、哦，是怎么样的？这样我就选择这样，代表我那天要走的时候，希望能。像现在这样哈、哦，很安详啦、啊，安详的走，没有痛苦，所以也不会给家人拖累。这样，我们每个人都有自己的想法，字也不一样，设计都不一样。One of the things we try not to do is to interpret the stories, the narratives that the communities give to us. So to let them tell the story themselves, the power remains within them to tell us what it means, not filtered through our words, our academic sometimes and our um, corporate language, right? It's really listen to it directly from them. And um, you might ask, what is the healthcare doing this? Where is the health? Yeah. So a lot of it is about self-health. It is not about creating new activities for them uh, that's, that do the business of health, which is my job. It's not their job. Yeah. It is about having a very low energy um, barrier for them to be already engaged in it and then introducing the health component into it stealthily, so that while they're enjoying themselves, they didn't realise, they just got a bit healthier. Yeah. Um, and it, we do uh, have uh, health impacts, both at a personal level. Uh, for example, we have shown for some of uh, these um, seniors, and even some of them are not seniors, they actually use healthcare a lot less because they self-manage now. They're able to look after each other and they mutually extend help to each other, reducing their reliance on a system-delivered health. And then there is community wellness. There is community wellness from multiple aspects, including mental, mental well-being, okay? looking out for each other, and they require less system-delivered care. Right. And then there's actually also contributions. So one of the things uh, that we realise is that they are asking to be, they are waiting to be asked. They are waiting to be asked to contribute because many of them have left their jobs after retirement. They still want to contribute. And you can see that actually contribution really gives people um, a sense of agency, right, and purpose and meaning, and that is so important to living well. Yeah. Um, so beyond the three wellness kampong, we have actually moved. So you can see that uh, from 2014 to um, our latest count, this was we counted it at the end of uh, nearly nearing the end of COVID, right? Um, three wellness kampong, but then we have a lot more notes. Some of these are not walk spaces. Uh, we just go there, open table, nurses sit there, connectors sit there, and then we just have space to chat with uh, um, the residents. And um, we go to where they are. We don't wait for them to come to us. So we don't have a help desk that people, if they need anything, come to us and then we do referrals. So we don't do referrals, we do introductions and accompaniments. There is no service level agreement around introductions and accompaniments. So we talk to them, we introduce them to their neighbours, uh, and we have community conversations about what they envision their own community could be like. Okay? Um, we actually bring partners in to teach them how to manage themselves. So uh, CPR, first aid, self-management, 
uh, even how to do a healthy supermarket um, buying. Because the, the game is lost, right? After you bought, it's not at the cooking. The game is over by the time you buy your ingredients. Yeah? Uh, and then um, we also work with the merchants to try and see if we can extend some of these um, um, assistance. And essentially, a lot of us as organisations, we like to talk about co-production. That means we work with them to produce next things. That's actually second best. The best thing is actually production by themselves. So that's what they do. They actually build their own community um, uh, libraries. They actually hold their own uh, food distributions and exchanges. Um, they form their own swimming kaki, walking kaki. They share food. Uh, they break fast together. This is all initiated by them. So there's very little that we need to do, but we're just there. Yeah? And um, why would we give literacy a leg up? Why don't we just leave it to Dennis or, or the education um, uh, sector, right? Well, we always talk about health literacy. But the truth is, even just improving literacy will extend a person's life and give a higher quality to that life. Yeah. Uh, so later, I talk to Dennis and see if I can have just English lessons. Why? Because English is a language, right? Is there content? There's no content. So I want to increase health literacy. All I need to do is have an English lesson. You want to increase social literacy? Have an English lesson. The vocabulary comes from there, right? So we could do that as well, yeah. Uh, and by the way, the children bring their parents. The parents bring their parents. Suddenly, we have tri-generational uh, work. And that's when the nurses can actually say, I notice you're walking with a limp. Did you have that looked into? Would you like that? And there were so many opportunities. So you can enter in by any angle, whether it's health, it's education, it's safety, it's security, it's economy. Enter in by any of this. In the end, health also benefits. So that's why Yishun Health is doing this. And um, so this is how we map our work. Um, in the two areas, Yishun and Sembawang, by the, um, the size of the networks that are growing. And um, we are still trying to find how do we document this impact? We don't know uh, if there are people who would like to study this, we'd be happy to. Um, but uh, we have documented what we've tried to do since we started in the last 11 years. And you can get this book uh, online. Um, it's available for anyone. But really what we want to do is to mainstream practical participation uh, with an aspirational target of 30% of residents participating regularly, which means at least three times a week in community events. And maybe that will be the start of community empowerment. Thank you. Thank you, Suipan. I just want to share that I know Sifan for quite some time, maybe 10 years. <laughs> and, I, and I learned so much from Sifan uh, being an architect. I think we always re imagine that we, whatever we design, people will naturally use it the way it is, but most of the time it's not, it doesn't work out that way. And we, I learned so much about ABCD, asset-based development, that you know, looking at all the spaces, that's how the designer will have to be you know, involved much earlier rather than you know, just looking at the program and then just design functional spaces. So I hope that this is really a good case study for all of us. And uh, coming to uh, uh, education as well. Actually, I want to know a little bit about the demography of our audience. So we, we know who I was speaking to. So, sorry, just give me like, maybe a moment. Uh, because I'm very curious, am I the only architect in the crowd? Is there any other people from the built environment sector, whether you're architect or planners, all right, I see one. Uh, urban designer, landscape, two. Okay, we are still minority, yeah? Uh, I hope that maybe we can increase those rates in future, that we can really learn from the experts here. And that's the whole uh, objective of why I'm here today as well. Uh, and I'm also coming from the institution, so can I also have a show of hands? How many of you are students uh, or teachers coming from S schools, university, 
I see you wearing uniform, right? <laughs> it's just too shy. Okay, we have a few tables here and over there. Good, good, good. So now I, I need to hand over to uh, our expert here, <laughs> Dennis, uh, to share with us how can then translate that into uh, curriculum. Dennis. Thank you very much. Um, Unlike architects who seem to be the minority here, all of us are in one way or another are educators, right? Formal or otherwise. That's why, you know, when, when Justin told me that I'm the token educator who's coming up to speak, I have a huge target on my, on my chest right, right now suddenly, and I looked at the previous comments. A lot of them are all about schooling and education. Um, I'm going to hold back on some of those kinds of things that uh, people have posed about schooling and education, and I'm going to be talking about uh, two things research practice partnerships, and community-based efforts centered around schools. So the idea behind this is that um, there is three assumptions that we always make about this kinds of partnership, uh, the ones that, that uh, Justin talked about as well as uh, and other examples as well. The first one is that there is untapped capacity and value that if you bring partners together, you bring stakeholders together, somehow there's a strength in numbers. Right? That's the second assumption, that when you get people together, the sum is greater than the parts. Right? The third assumption, and, and this is actually a key one, is that people and community want to help one another. Right? That the collective drive is more important than the individual drive. So those are the three key assumptions that we always have to think about when we do any kind of partnership work. Okay? And if you look at this, this is uh, an example of a definition of what research practice partnership is. Uh, Justin mentioned it, uh, sorry, Sam mentioned it earlier on uh, during his speech that this entire uh, Future Ready Society is really about this idea of a research practice partnership. And if you look at the five principles there, um, it's long-term, it's really focused on improvement, research is the leading activity, that it's about the diversity of expertise. So when you have partnership, right, you, you don't want to have everybody who have the same mind. You want people of different minds. And when you have people of different minds, one of the biggest challenges you always have is you're going to get a rojak, right? And the challenge is to actually try and change from a rojak to something like a sequence of buffet, you know, like an omakase kind of thing, right? And that's going to be a challenge for diversity. Uh, and importantly, when it comes to partnerships, is to try and shift relationships, okay? Um, and it is, in, in terms of schools, when it comes to research practice partnerships, it is about thinking about not just within schools making improvements, but between schools and beyond schools, okay? And RPPs don't, are not limited to schools only. It's limited, it's, other, other sectors have talked about it as, as well, uh, including health and social work as well. So that's, that's something that you, uh, you should think about. Now, um, there are two examples here, one from Scotland uh, and one from Singapore. The School Improvement Partnership Program is one that's conducted by the University of Glasgow with about 50-odd schools thereabouts increasing when they were doing it. Um, and I think there are a number of common characteristics between the two of them. Firstly, it is about partnerships with diverse partners, as I mentioned before. Secondly, it tends to be organic. In other words, it's almost like serendipity. You, you get people together, but it becomes long-term. In other words, you get people together and it's like, Marriage either works out or it doesn't, right? So when it does work out, it becomes very long-term. Um, the third thing is about ownership. I think you've heard this before previously as well. There's a need for ownership in the community. And then the other thing is that it's also participatory. All right? It leads towards, in other words, you have to have people who take ownership, they must be able to participate. And then after that, you build that kind of trust and relationship. Um, it is, in these two particular cases, strongly equity-driven and strongly research-driven. That's why it's called research practice partnerships, okay? So in the example, for example, in Singapore of the knowledge building community, this is one that our research center has been, uh, has a colleague of ours that's been doing this for a while, and she has been doing this uh, in, in, in schools organically. She is almost like a traveling salesman. She goes from one school to the next, to the next kind of thing. But importantly, every school that she goes to generates champions that helps her to spread the word around, okay? And by doing that, she's actually generating those kinds of networks and moving her ideas and her plans for a knowledge-building community, which is really about ideas development with uh, students across. And one thing about the knowledge-building community is that it's peer-to-peer -peer learning. In other words, students are helping students with teachers purely as facilitators. The other example I want to give now is this idea of a university family school community partnerships. 
Um, now, here is where I want to kind of uh, introduce one of three concepts, and that's the difference between space and place. Um, I just came, about 10 days ago, I came back from Korea. I found out that my wife is C+, and I told her I cannot afford to get infected, although I've been wanting to get infected for a while. <laughs> So that I don't catch it if I go overseas, ma. Uh, and I told her I'm going to quarantine myself. I'm going to keep myself in a hotel so that I can um, spend the next few days because there's a very tight deadline coming up. In three days' time, I have a research grant that I have to put together. And so I'm very, very stressed out and I don't want to catch something from, from her. La. So I said, I'll stay in a hotel, right? So most of you have experiences staying in a hotel. A hotel is a space. It's a transient space. You go there, it's purely functional. All right, and you go there, largely when you go overseas, the hotel is largely for you to just sleep and wash up. The rest of the time you spend outside, right? However, in my case, it changes from a space to a place. And in a few days' time when I check out from the hotel, I'm gonna, I have a sense of, I'm going to miss this place. Because for the last 10 plus days, it's become my work from hotel office place. Right? I spend all my time writing my proposal, connecting with people, etc., and all that. That difference between a space and a place okay, is an important geographical concept as well. Space is transient, but place becomes a place when you pause and when it becomes imbued with felt values. That's why when we talk about place-based approaches, we don't talk about space-based approaches. A place like the one you've seen earlier on with the community centres and the, and the kampong, wellness kampongs are places where people experience things and they become valuable to them. There's a felt value behind it. There's a sentimental value. That's something that we learned in our study trip to Scotland. A lot of the places have strong sentimental attachment behind them. Okay, so place-based approach, as you can see from the definition there, is really when a whole bunch of people come together because they live, work, or stay in that place for a considerable period of time, and they want to make changes to that place to try and really improve it. Okay, and this work here is something that is aspirational for me. The key premise is this. When we go around Singapore and we look at schools, schools tend to be, like in that photo there, a center of gravity with a lot of HDB buildings around it, for example. It becomes the heart of a community potentially because it is there. Okay, a place where potentially for some of the students, it might be a transient space or later on you might actually find that this is one place that you can really be very proud of. You are a Reflesian, you're a Dunman High student, you're a you know, Swiss cottage, I think that's over there, right? And the idea behind this is that you, you want to really generate this work as a school, thinking of schools as a community hub. So we, we are now thinking, we are now seeing some cross similarities, right? Whether it's a community centre as a hub, uh, whether it's a, a void deck as a hub, whether it's a school as a hub, it doesn't matter. But what you're thinking of is using that space and changing it into a place, okay? And for schools, there's this argument here that is, you know, uh, as a community hub, it's really about that kind of a holistic, integrative approach to helping students. Okay, so the locus might change, and the participants might change. Right here, we're now looking at students. And really, it's about empowering the entire community around them to help students and families improve their, be it academic outcomes or their life outcomes. Okay? Two examples that I want to give you, one from Scotland again. This is the Children's Neighbourhood Scotland. It began in 2018 and it's kind of, it stopped in 2022. And it had the misfortune of encountering COVID, which actually kind of stopped it along the, the, the tracks that it really wanted to do. It has been in a number of communities, about eight of them. And what they have done is they've, they've started with a few premises first. Firstly, the ideas for this uh, Children's Community, uh, Children's Neighbourhood Society is that you centre it on a school. But the design, the ideas, the goals, and the outcomes all come from the children. That's known as the capabilities approach. In other words, that place has to mean something to the kids who work there, who live there around that community, who study in that school, okay? Not from the adults. So this is a key difference, okay? How many times we make decisions for children when they have a lot of ideas that potentially can actually help them, right? 
So that's kind of like the first thing. The, the, the children decided, uh, for example, they did a survey, the, 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 the adults did help them with some of the surveys, etc., and all that. But the findings from that is that they prioritize life, education, standard of living, health, and play in decreasing order. You notice, play is not the first thing. Right? They think that actually life, as in living a full life, is actually the most important thing for them. And how can the school as a community help then help them? Okay? The second one is actually something that has been sustained uh, a little bit more systemically. Uh, this is in Australia. Um, this is where the idea and recognition that, like, like I say, schools, and I think a lot of this is the same thing, community centres are underutilised, right? Void decks are underutilised. Schools are underutilised in, in terms of community assets. Now, what can you do with those schools? How do you convert them, right? And this is the idea of creating this kind of a new social compact between schools and community in order for them to really work together as a whole in order to improve the lives of children and family. So the idea is more than a school, right? Because schools, we always think when we see schools, all sorts of bad things come to mind, right? It's a horrible place where you all have to cram for exams, etc., and all that kind of thing, and then after that, you can't wait to get out of it. I personally have a lot of that kind of negative experiences as well. But how do you change that into more than just a school, okay? Now, um, the idea behind this, and you can find this actually information online if you just look for uh, you know, uh, schools as Community Hub Australia. Okay, it is community driven, and there are a number of core features that you see there, and there are a whole list of benefits that they have documented as they evaluated their, their attempts. They've done a conference. I think over 100 schools have been involved as schools as community in Australia. So it is spreading like rapidly over there. Okay? On the right-hand side, you can see that there are 12 key fundamental features as you begin to change the, the school into a community hub, including urban planning and design, safety concerns, funding, vision is important, facility design, etc., and all that. They say these are the 12 key features that you really have to think about as you change the school into a community hub. Okay? Now comes to the two concepts that I want to also talk about. The first one is on infrastructuring. The idea is this. Infrastructure, like the road, like traffic lights, you don't pay attention to them until they break down, right? If you're going to try and change practice, if you're going to try and make improvements to the system, you really don't, you can't just think about the people and the mechanisms and all that. You have to think about the infrastructure that actually embeds those practices in. And how then do you change that? The process is called infrastructuring, okay? It's a process of changing the very infrastructure. So if you think about it, putting chairs, books, cupboards, play things in a void deck, it's not going to help. If you don't change the very infrastructure to drive people or to encourage people to go there. Likewise, if you want to change the school into a community hub, you have to do a lot more. And that's what the idea of infrastructuring is. Okay? It's trying to redesign all the components, relations, routines in order to influence what takes place in the classroom or in the case, what takes place in the schools. The other thing is the idea of boundary spanners. We've heard about all these kinds of partnerships, okay? Boundary spanners are people who work across different communities. They have feet in one or more communities. When we talk about this kind of partnership, we really have to think hard about who are the people who can really drive the kinds of partnership. Justin here is one of them who knows a lot of you, I suspect, and he's a boundary spanner. Right? Because he has all those kinds of characteristics, he's obviously a skilled communicator, he can translate, you know, he's definitely an excellent networker, etc., and he's pro probably contextually astute and risk-taker, yeah, that kind of thing. You have to think about when you think of partnerships, what kinds of boundary spanners can you create? What kind of boundary spanners do you have in your organisations that can work with other partners? So those are the two things that I want to talk about. We have a this is my Goyo selling. Uh, we have a conference coming up with two big keynoters coming in from uh, who's going to be talking about research practice partnerships. If you are familiar with the research literature, Bill Pennell is one of the key founders of this whole idea of RPPs. Um, and Adam Lefstein, I don't know whether he can come or not because he's in that country where there's a lot of problems right now. Uh, he might be able to, uh, he has done a lot of large scale RPPs as well. With that, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, Dennis. Well, after spending about eight months, close to eight months in Finland just last year, I just came back like three months ago. 
uh, it really struck me the in terms of the education system. I have two kids. One is doing A level. The other one is going to do O level. So I can really see the kind of uh, you know a different kind of culture or mindset that our kids are going through. I really like the idea that the university and schools and family and community as a half. In fact, I'm, I'm actually after coming back, I'm toying with the idea of working out something with the... After 10 years in SUDD, this is the first time I meet the principal of secondary school outside our university. And we started to talk, and there's a lot of things that we can do together. So I really want to consult you maybe after this. Uh, let this not just be a casual chat, but really be something meaningful that has come out from this. Thank you so much. Uh, well, uh, next we have Chloe, and also Peguan, please share with us. Hi, uh, I'm Chloe from SG and Able, and Peg One is from SPD. Um, so, a bit of going about SG and Able. Uh, we are the focal agency and first stop for persons with disabilities and caregivers that's looking for support uh, for disability uh, services. And also, we do work with corporate uh, corporates and employers uh, that's looking at inclusive workspaces or training and employment. And uh, this year is our 10th year anniversary, so uh, we really appreciate the partners and the funders who have come forward to work at SG Enable. So the Enabling Services Hub uh, is a new initiative that we just pilot uh, this year, uh, set up by SG Enable and in partnership with SPD. Uh, the first Enabling Services Hub is at Tampines West uh, Community Centre, uh, really bring social service into the community centre spaces. So um, let me just share an overview of uh, Enabling Services Hub and then uh, later I'll hand over the time to uh, pick one to talk a bit about what SPD do at the regional level. Okay, so um, the Enabling Services Hub, uh, or in short ESH, we love acronyms, uh, it aims to bring integrated person-centric uh, disability support and programs closer to the homes of persons with disabilities and their caregivers. Uh, it seeks to do four things, uh, outreach uh, and referral uh, to reach out to persons with disabilities in the community who are not in any disability services. And this can include uh, uh, clients that may have not attended early intervention services or they have been cared for by the caregivers uh, at home and now the caregivers have aged and are looking for support. So this is where we hope to come in to reach out to them and offer referrals and also the services of ESH. So to do that, uh, we do work with community partners to build that network of community support. Uh, I love the, the, uh, the, the concept shared by Dr. Wong about the care communities. It's very similar to that, to bring in uh, the partners to look at the asset-based community approach uh, to, to build that network of support. Um, we hope to run on-site programs and services uh, and also look at befriending as well as continual learning and education as well as social and recreation uh, opportunities. So the hub uh, aims to provide all-rounded support at three levels. At the individual level, um, for the person with disability, we hope to improve functional, social and community living skills. This is done through social inclusion activities, uh, the continual education and learning courses uh, that looks at vocational skills training, and I mentioned about the outreach and referral. Then at the family level, we hope to better support caregivers to improve their coping skills, uh, reduce stress, and to provide uh, a greater sense of connectedness in the community so that they don't feel that they're alone in this journey of care. And to do that, uh, we hope to provide uh, caregiver skills training. There are respite care uh, options available at ESH. And through ESH, uh, we also hope to strengthen the caregiver support networks, um, bring the peer-to-peer -peer circles into the hub. Then at the community level, uh, this is where we involve partners to build that support to persons with disabilities and their families. And also, for example, looking at uh, bring volunteers uh, to befriend the families and also working with healthcare partners so that we can look at um, the social and health well-being of the families and the, uh, their loved ones. So in terms of community activities, uh, we run a whole range. Um, so for example, SPD has been uh, doing outreach and running activities since May, even before our launch in August. 
That was just two months ago, so we are still relatively new. Uh, but despite that, actually SBE has been working hard on the ground, working with partners. So for example, uh, they do the HPB fitness sessions where the clients uh, and the community residents can both participate in the workouts. Um, so, and we hope to do more of such uh, inclusive and accessible events in the region. And uh, the activities uh, will look at uh, uh, domains of areas that we identified from the daily living skills framework, uh, so that it's contribute back towards the, um, say, functional and living, independent living skills of uh, the person with disability. And the uh, SG Enables Enabling Academy is also further building up uh, the various skills framework, which ESH uh, will also look at in terms of uh, providing the training courses. We work with uh, many partners to organize inclusive activities. So some examples of the partners that we work with, like PA, uh, HBB, SG Care Volunteer Centers. Uh, we uh, connected to Philos and uh, Care Corner Volunteer Centers so that we can tap on the volunteer networks uh, to provide the, uh, uh, the regular house visits and befriending services to the families. So uh, later you see an example uh, of uh, a collaboration with uh, the library. And uh, SPD also organized visits to National Gallery Singapore, organized uh, arts and craft and breeze walking as part of their offering of the on-site programs. So uh, the activities actually participated with uh, the residents as well who can be participants or volunteers. And uh, in terms of the continual education and learning activities, it really focuses on skills retention and training uh, for both the person with disabilities and the caregivers. Uh, the money management uh, classes, food prep, uh, and digital literacy uh, for the person with disabilities. And there's also copy talks where caregivers can share and connect with each other, hopefully to build up the support network for each other. So I'm going to share a short clip or video of uh, one of the clients uh, who has benefited from an Living Services Hub. This was once a rare outing for Sean Lin. He's got Down syndrome and has spent the last eight years staying at home watching television. After he graduated and after he finished the workshop, uh, we got no other avenue where we can put him to. Then, SPD came knocking. The day you play the basketball, you like remember? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh? Mm? How you like it or not? Yeah, right. The social service agency introduced Sean and his family to the Enabling Services Hub. Now, he's volunteering at a nearby library three days a week and learning arts and crafts. He used to sleep late, wake up late, but it's the other way around now. Yeah, because once they got activities, he's all keen up, all, all working, you know, uh, go to bed early and wake up early kind of thing. It's also helped him build social connections with others. Our friend, Trina, Chris. All those are friends, right? Yeah, our friend. Trina and friends, yeah. And while Sean's occupied, his parents get a breather. Yeah, basically my wife has some, some time by herself, you know, uh, peaceful. <laughs> peaceful time to herself kind of thing, you know. For me, I'll be out in the field, you know, uh, working kind of thing, you know. The family hopes these activity sessions could be longer, so Sean can spend more time meaningfully engaged. They're also hoping he picks up more life skills, like cooking. Okay, so this is uh, Sean's story. So behind Sean's story, there are a lot of engagements and partnerships that we have to do, so Sean's story happens. So um, although uh, the ESH is launched in August this year, uh, we have been engaging the community and making our presence felt since late last year. So uh, we have been uh, going to all, uh, as you can see, like 47 organizations, like um, such as all the grassroots, the advisors in Tampines and Bedok, the police, the firefighters, the SSOs, um, of course, uh, health outfit as well, um, and the schools, and of course, the NLB, the, um, the Tampines Regional Library that Sean volunteers at. So uh, this is where we try to make 
um, our presence felt in the sense uh, to the extent that we are known as the go-to hub for all matters disability, for all inquiries, for all referrals that relate to uh, disability as well as their caregivers. Of course, we also do outreach uh, events, as you can see, drawing more than 3,000 people. Then on the front of uh, volunteer engagement, as we meet the people, uh, as we meet PA, we meet CCs, we meet schools, we actively start to recruit volunteers and uh, bring them into our activities, regular as well as at our, our ad hoc events. And um, you have also heard uh, just now from the video that SPD came knocking. So this is where uh, SPD does all the door-to-door -door knocking, uh, over 2,100 households and uh, since March. And uh, we have been doing this to identify where our people with disabilities are. So, so far, you can, as, as you can see from the numbers, uh, more than 270 of which 109 have stepped up, uh, are willing uh, for us to come in to assess them for services and uh, less than about half that number is coming to join us at the ESH. This is a sample calendar activity that we have for October. It is on our website, on Tampines West, uh, CC Digital, Social Media. It is, on, it is at um, Heartbeat at Badok and so forth. So they have helped us to publicize this and uh, we have, as you can see from the calendar, inclusive activities that just now Chloe spoke about that we organized with the CC, like uh, HPB Run uh, Fitness, uh, you have Bokwa Fitness, then you have uh, Low Impact Aerobics and so forth. Yes, Justin, we can have fun and we can... <laughs> And we can do, uh, they, are not, they are not sad, so they are, uh, the people are coming in to have fun together with us. Uh, and uh, of course, you have, um, happy to report at this point that uh, Sean and Mum are joining the activities very actively. Um, uh, Mum is with our caregiver support group, definitely. And both of them sometimes join activities together. I mentioned that they wanted to do cooking, so yes, they are joining Cooking Mama. And they are with the seated volleyball. In fact, uh, Sean has grown quite a bit. He is like um, the lead in terms of warm-up uh, for the group together with my staff. So very happy to report that. Yeah, so this is uh, something that we do on an ongoing basis. Okay, so this last slide is just to show that uh, in terms of caregiver respite, we are doing this on a daily basis with uh, evenings, in terms of three-hour blocks and uh, with uh, evening slot on Wednesday. So just a brief one. Yep. So this is all we have. All right, thank you. Maybe we should give all of them a round of applause. Thanks, Chloe, and take one. Um, I teach this class called Social Architecture class in school, and uh, the favorite activities for students is actually to visit some of these places. I've been uh, bringing them to visit uh, enabling village, I've uh, been visiting Wellness Kampong many times, actually. Uh, so much that I can memorize all the scripts of the, uh, the guides. And <laughs> but it's uh, very eye-opening, so definitely I will bring them to visit the company's uh, EHS, uh, the, the, the latest one. But one thing, and, and as in, uh, from the architecture profession, we always see that it's a lot of time there's uh, what we design is not really what is, how it is being used, and we can see how things are being adapted, uh, and people are stepping up and being empowered. Um, so, in fact, the first thing that I asked Samuel when I was asked to come and moderate this is, why me? Because I never run any program before. <laughs> I probably don't know what's the struggle that you're going through and all that. But having, uh, coming from the other side, the other angle or perspective of designing for these spaces, they will always imagine that things will go on like this. Perhaps this is not what we have imagined. So, uh, how from these two different angles, if you can learn more, 
Uh, that's why I'm here to take notes and learn. Uh, from your challenges and also opportunity that you, if, in fact, we are talking about empowerment is something that's much more positive than uh, set spaces like well, what Justin uh, would imagine, which I also beg to defer because many of these places that my student and I visit, they are very happy people. Right, so how can we learn from here that you overcome some of the spatial constraint and turn it into a place? I think this is something that is really meaningful for many of us here. Uh, uh, maybe I'll start with uh, Sifan. So did you want the design principles or did no, you... No, I actually, no, I, let's go beyond the theory and all that. In fact, if you can share a little bit more about the uh, not so happy, the, the challenges, and then how you can adapt, like how Dennis said he transformed a hotel room into a, you know, a, a, a very place-based, very motivated working space that you can connect with people, something like that. Maybe you yeah. can share more. Thanks. Um, I really think the first step is genuine engagement. Yeah. So, you know, when we were going to, when we were preparing the spaces, um, the residents actually came up to us and said, why are you taking our community space for your offices? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we, we took the opportunity of Chinese New Year and we went to the blocks and it, at the pretext of delivering oranges, we basically said, come on down, this is going to be your space. Mm -hmm. um, tell me what you think of it after you come and engage. And really when they came down, they saw the space was open for them. No membership. It is not a club. No um, fee to join. Yeah. Um, there was a contrasting partner who had a membership to form a club. Very cheap, $10 a year. Okay. Um, so they had 30 members, so $300 a year. At the Wellness Kampong, on a yearly basis, Without um, soliciting, we get 3,000 per wellness kampong per year. So it is just people putting in things. Uh, and it's the daily little things. So for example, uh, people use the toilet, put in 10 cents. I, I think this is Singapore behaviour. We use toilet, <laughs> we put 10 cents in, right? So over the year, how many people use the toilet? It's yeah. what they just need, right? You leverage on their habit, so, yeah, we just, yeah, so times. it's a low energy barrier activity. Yeah, and we just leverage those things that's so intrinsic to us that we just do as a community behavior. Yeah, so really that genuine engagement and the genuine engagement must be followed by actual uh, behavior on the ground. For example, at that space, we do not have this no admittance only for authorized personnel. There is no label there. Any space, even if it is an office where the community nurse will sit in and hold a very private and confidential conversation, right? That's when we close the door. Um, the notes uh, kept in locked cabinets, but beyond that, the space anyone can come in uh, to use. And that is where the inclusivity will come in, right? There is, it is their space. We are guests. We are coming in to facilitate. So we shouldn't take over the space. Yeah, so I think that was very helpful for us to learn. So being genuine, yeah. uh, being open, yes. uh, and also know what their behaviour is and then build on that, yeah. right? It will be really make the space become a place yeah. uh, more than and just a cold Sometimes you see uh, for people who are very shy or very uncertain, right? Um, don't have a door with a doorbell. Yeah, because they're never going to press the doorbell. So you have a space where the inside and the outside there is no distinction. They will just wander in, oh, I can sit down and have a cup of coffee and nobody will ask me, what am I doing here? And then they have the cup of coffee and it's like, oh, this is normal. Okay, and so free coffee is another one. Yeah, really free movement inside. Oh, food is a good right. draw. Food is a good draw. Um, and um, actually, all of us, we will just observe natural behaviour. So people who are wandering, right, they will watch. Every day when the door opens, 
the first eight people are always the same people in just different order. Okay? It's, it is. And how do we know that? It's because we ask them to register their names and we compare every day is the first eight names. They are never different. Chop seat, right? Another behaviour of Singaporeans. Ah, but they don't chop seat. Oh. Yes, they don't. So, what I would do if I didn't know this space, I'll just watch. So the first thing you do is you go in, you just head towards the registration, then you just write your name down. Oh, I can do that. It's very low energy. It takes very little out of me to just get involved. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, technology came in and people asked, why don't you just automate the whole thing? And then we did try. It's easier, it's faster, it's a lot less uh, uh, but we didn't do it. Why? Because they were actually learning to write their names in English. Yeah, and they were using that as practice. So it was a good thing to happen. So sometimes we overthink and um, we may just want to watch and see what people do and leverage whatever is natural uh, to them. Great. I think there's a lot of learning point here. Just one question. Denise, what do you think? I'm just going to uh, respond quickly to this one. Um, I think as Singaporeans, we tend to be very fixated with order in the sense that um, you know, there's a space that is designed for this particular purpose, you cannot deviate from that particular purpose. Uh, and when, when people start to use it for a different reason or a different purpose, right, you kind of like cannot take it. You know? um, I mean, if this place, for example, becomes a, f a futsal, <laughs> I, think, I think the hotel's going to freak out. You know? um, and, but I think we have to let go a bit. You know, spaces sometimes can be colonized and used for different reasons. And I think we need to let that happen sometimes organically. Um, we, we've been to schools where there are empty plots of land and you know, students working with teachers will start to colonize that space and make it into a garden, right? And then of course they throw in a whole bunch of science activities behind it, etc., and all that kind of stuff. But you let it organically grow. It may not look nice sometimes, Right? Because it's done by people who don't have design ideas, etc., and all that. But it's there for a reason. And it becomes a place that kids commit to and take ownership over it. You know? So I think that we, we sometimes have to let go a bit, be a bit chill as Singaporeans. Don't be too freaked out by all So that. chill is another word. <laughs> but I, I really, sorry, I just want to tap onto that because it's something that I've been struggling with because as designer, planner or architect, we always try and tend to over-design uh, such that there's no room for them to actually experiment because we are very, very fear of messiness. Uh, I think I represent a lot of uh, designers out there, right? Uh, they, you, you can't shift that because I designed it that way, right? Or we, we come up with the rules or regulation. You can't change that because that's how they establish. Can Singapore or can just community in general accept that things will be messy? Because only messy things will be you know, organic. If it is too tidy and clean and designed, it won't be so organic. What do you think? I, I tend to be a little bit more um, less orderly. My place is always a mess. Um, <laughs> but I, I think there has to be that kind of a op opportunity for a little but bit. But that's different space. because a personal, personal space yeah. can be messy. Yeah. About public space. Maybe I'd like to jump in here. So uh, we had a designer design one of the three Venus Kampong. It's beautiful. Designer chairs, um, colour coordinated. Yeah, and when the community came in, they said, mm, the chair is pretty, okay, um, it's not useful because when they sat in, they couldn't get up, okay, uh, and then it fulfilled all the criteria of a geriatrician, okay, it had arms, it was heavy, so, you know, if you lean on it, it would not topple, and then they didn't use it, and we asked, why? cannot move, uh, so difficult. Uh, then we ask, what sort of chair do you want? They want the classic plastic red chair. The, the red chair at the yes, coffee yes, shop? Yes, yeah. yes. Now, now got many colours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, then we ask, why? Why do you like that? Well, first of all, we can organise it ourselves. We will just stack it up when we don't need it, push it to the side. Any senior can do that. It's lightweight enough. And then when we want to put out the chairs, we could uh, put them out in the um, configuration that uh, the activity requires. And so 
in that sense, uh, so we, we had to push aside the designer chair and put out the... Yeah, so it's untidy. They do stack it up. But you can see community mobilising, which is not about designing the space anymore, but it's about community reorganising themselves to get things going and done. Yeah. And it saves costs. Yeah. You don't need designer chair. Yeah. Big one, sorry, I cut you over just now. I just wanted to respond to one of the points that I think Dennis brought up about space to place and in how infrastructuring uh, helps this. Because when I visited uh, Wellness Kampong, I find that it is very conducive because it's a void deck, right? So it's very like open. When I go in, I feel comfortable. I want to sit at the kitchen, the bar, table there and drink soup, which I which I did. Thank you very much <laughs> to the seniors uh, who cooked it. So um, I feel that uh, that sets the pace, that sets the tone, the stage uh, for people to welcome the community into that space, uh, feel comfortable and, you know, just do. So um, reflecting back on ESH, um, uh, we are located in the CC, so we are very nascent in terms of really getting the community come in, uh, own this part or own this role, that role, we are still doing that. So uh, we still have a lot to learn from Asian Health, Wellness Kampong. Yeah, so um, I think uh, one of the things that really helped help as we currently see it, because we are still quite nascent, right, uh, is basically when they pick up to contribute to what whatever activity that we are doing. Uh, be it like maybe uh, something uh, in terms of art and craft that they can do very well and they want to enable their peers to be able to do it as well and so forth. Yeah. So it's an asset that you discover from the community that you turn it into some kind of program yeah. that bring them back again. Right. Yep. Uh, Chloe? And I just want to add on, I think the people part is important because otherwise a space, uh, no matter how well designed, is a physical space. So the people, uh, uh, what I think uh, brings about that sense of connectedness to a space. Uh, so one of the key things for ESH is uh, rallying uh, volunteers uh, to come in uh, to participate in activities as well as uh, to build um, friendships. And uh, the intent was also not only for um, the person with disabilities and the families coming physically on site for activities or go out for activities, but the volunteers uh, can also do house visits and eventually become befrienders and journeying with the caregivers uh, as a support uh, their loved ones. So I think the, the, the people part is key uh, to making the ESH, the hub itself, a vibrant spaces. Uh, actually, for those who live in the East, we have been to Tampines West CC. Uh, it's very small. It's not as big as uh, our Tampines hub or heartbeats at Bedok. Uh, but really, uh, it, is, uh, it can be a space where the families can first come because they connect with SPD. And thereafter, actually, there are many, I mean, Singapore is small, but then there's so many places they can go, right? So we're not restricted to the physical premise itself. I actually want to continue the conversation, but we are asked to wrap up. Uh, <laughs> do you mind just give us another five minutes before lunch? I know everybody's hungry, so we can properly wrap it up and also have a good learning from here. But because I really want to tap on the idea of the people, I, I think that's right. I think many of you have shared, it's not just about the space or the place, it's actually the people that make the space into a place, right? It can be messy, disorganized even, but it's the people that, that counts. But who are these people? Who make up the community? When we keep saying power, empower the community, who are the community we are talking about? Right? Is that the residents? All the residents? How many of the residents? Is that the volunteer? Who are the volunteer? Where they come from? How you recruit? And, and uh, or, uh, what is that about a care recipient or caregiver? There's so many diversity of people or community we're talking about. So maybe just have a word from each of you. Uh, or Chloe want to co just continue, or, or Dennis, you want to... I mean, this, this, this question about community was one that was bugging me during the Scotland trip. What is, what is our community? What is a community here? You know, in, in Scotland, in other countries, uh, community is defined by geographical boundaries. You live around a village, for example, or you live around a town, or you, you live around a particular place, right? And you, that boundary is your community. You know the people in there. Now, if I think of, say, for example, River Valley High School, River Valley is no longer at River Valley, it's somewhere on the west side in, in Jurong, right? That the name is no longer even associated with the community that could be in River Valley. We, we, we need to, I think, think hard about 
what is a community for us first? You know, um, is it a geographical idea? Is it a social cultural idea? Is it about you know the different uh, ethnicities or, 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 or what is it? Yeah. I don't have an answer that, to that. I think we need to think hard about that part. <laughs> Actually, I also think um, we have to take a person-centric approach, right? So we can say, oh, we can do X, Y, Z. We can run uh, ABC activities. But really, uh, what do the persons we serve, what do they need? What do they aspire for? So if, let's say, I have a booth, uh, let's say there's volunteers to befriend you, maybe I'll get nobody to sign up. But if I have a sports, uh, a sports uh, event, say, at the, uh, uh, the, the, what's that? The sports hub. Uh, then maybe they will, I get uh, various uh, participation from uh, persons with disabilities, caregivers, friends, community, relatives coming in. And that's, that's what built that natural uh, community networks. And it has to be something that also meets the needs uh, and not just what we think oh, is good to have, but maybe doesn't meet what they actually require from us. So it can go beyond locality, right? Yeah. yeah. So. Um, it is yeah. It is about harvesting assets, right, and strengths that people have. So we have a volunteer. Uh, she's just a financial advisor. Mm. So uh, she's a befriender for this family with uh, the our blind client for um, I think coming to four four to five months. So she's actually doing uh, deputyship and LPA. Yeah, uh, LPA with this family uh, is really to help the mum. Uh, basically, who worries all about when she's gone, what's going to happen, which is a very common caregiver concern. Yeah, so she's there to do the LPA with. Uh, so that is like matching uh, her strength, uh, I mean, what she has, uh, and really. Um, she already has the skills to be able to help to contribute the family and you know like Sean's case uh, is like oh he likes to volunteer you know doing sorting of books and so forth and how, how do we match that with uh, something in the vicinity which is a Tampanese library so I think that part of it uh, is also important so when you say who, who is the community is actually yeah. all, all of the above la, <laughs> that you, you mentioned just now is how do, how do we harvest how do we harness that strength to bring it out yeah, yeah. on the table. So, uh, Sifan, you want to add? Yeah, so really all of us are members of many different communities mm. at the same time, yeah. right? Uh, where we live, where we work is a different community. There's the IT, the virtual community and the real community, right? But in our setting here, we are talking about place-based communities. Yeah. Then we are talking about a locality because um, really local action mm. is about the people there. And um, when you start looking at a community from that perspective, mm. uh, it cuts across a lot of things. Um, age, mm. abilities, uh, it cuts across race, uh, it cuts across so much, then you are actually looking at a real diverse mm. um community right so every individual is different the associational life that they have the small groups that they form is also different and they form multiple associational groups so there's a lot of richness there and if we don't look into that richness we are missing a lot and when we over service right we are all service providers here right we over service we basically take away the agency of that community yeah. to be their own richness. Yeah. So we should be aware, be aware, be aware of how yes. much extent that we yes. are servicing and be aware of our give impact. more agency yeah. to the, the people. Right? Yeah. So thanks so much. Uh, in fact, I, I just want to wrap up with a, a very interesting insight that we ran uh, on a survey uh, with HDB earlier called New Urban Kampong. We tried to define what is this Kampong in the new context. So one of the survey questions is asking whether or not you know any of the neighbours around and you work, uh, you know, you hang out with the neighbours. And they say, most of the time, say, no, I don't hang out with neighbours. And uh, But then we say, what about the person that across the, the, the block and then you always hang out, you always have coffee? Oh, that's not neighbour, that's friend. So the, 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 blur, the blur of line between neighbours, friends and communities start to you know, uh, blur and disassociate. And in fact, that may be a good thing that we can start to readdress, redefine what is friends, what is neighbours, what is community and maybe it's locality, 
those outside locality can also turn into asset that they can be part of this locality as well. I think there's so, so much more research that we can do on this. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank all the uh, speakers here today with us. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry I didn't manage to go into the question on the ground, but I hope it's a meaningful discussion. Thank you.